0: Okay, so Jonathan, tell me, tell me about this, um, this diabetic cat.
1: Oh man, yeah, th- I didn't even think that this was something that existed, but apparently cats can get diabetes, and it's always the the one you like the least because you know that's how life works. So I got this giant Maine Coon who suddenly went from twenty seven pounds to about eleven pounds, and uh, took him into the vet, and they said he's diabetic. We all kind of looked at each other. It was some sort of cruel joke, but no, no, I have to uh, have to stab this damn cat twice a day. And, and uh, Joan was saying there's more problems with it too. No, you said that, that one, cat's
0: a mess or something like that.
1: No, all of them are. Uh, I've got I've got the diabetic cat, and I have the 22 year old grumpy old man um, that I have to. It, this makes me sound like like so much not a conservative, but I have to uh, put four ounces of fluid subcutaneously to him twice a week.
2: Wow.
1: Yeah, I think all Yeah, other- that's the
2: most liberal thing you ever said in your entire life, right there. <laughs> oh,
1: I know. All, all farmer and ranch, other farmer and rancher buddies of mine are like, you know, there's a really simple and cheap way to do that. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, I know. But here we
3: are.
2: Here we are. All right, welcome back, everybody, to Round the Campfire. This is your co-host John Green, and with me, I got Ty Vernon. Say hello, Ty.
0: Hello, but I'm thinking we're having technical difficulties because I don't see my waveform. I
2: hear you. And I see yours. Oh, okay. It's glitching out on my end. Welcome, everybody. All right. And with us today, we have Jonathan Fisher, who is a prosecutor in Texas. Hey, everybody. All right. Welcome. Glad you can finally come on, man. We've been talking about this for a little bit now.
1: Yeah, no, I appreciate it. You know, it's kind of nice when someone sends an invite.
2: Yeah, Yeah. that's true. All right. Fair enough. (laughs)
0: So, Jonathan, how'd you get into, uh, like, the field of law? Like, what got you sort of, like, started with it?
1: Uh, To take a a short version of a long story is I was originally pre-med, and uh, my dad, who's a physician, I sat down and was talking with him, and he basically talked me out of it. Uh, That and Ogan. Really? Yeah. Yeah, he was telling me it wasn't the same that he got into, and uh, we had a long conversation over a couple beers, and I kind of agreed with him. And then I also was in my second semester of organic chemistry and quickly realized that, that she and I were not going to be good bedfellows. So I did a complete 180 and uh, had a double major in history in Spanish um, with, the, with the understanding that I was going into law school. And, uh, and after that, just kind of fell in love with it. And a uh, buddy of mine and I, right after law school, started up a small criminal defense practice, did that for about 10 years or so.
2: What, um, what do you think it is about the law that people really fall in love with?
1: That's a really interesting question. I think it, it really depends. I am I'm an extreme extrovert that married an introvert. So um, for me, it's the courtroom. I absolutely love being in the courtroom. I love trial. I love being in hearings. Uh, some people, the one guy I graduated with actually was so nervous about social interaction that if you went into his little study room to talk to him, he would go underneath the desk to have the conversation. Um, really? Yeah. Yeah. He's he's working for uh, Thompson West as a research attorney, as you might imagine.
2: Oh, yeah. That's definitely the type. <laughs> yeah.
1: Uh, and this was the days before online classes. So he would just sit panicked in a far corner with a hoodie tied up around his face, like Kenny from South Park. Yeah, he's man. But, uh, that, that's what drew me to it. Um, you know, it, the people who go into things like personal injury are the ones usually looking for money if, if they can make it. But, uh, my favorite thing about it is I, I get paid to talk I get paid to argue and, um, Especially in my current position, I'm kind of allowed to pick the cases I truly believe in.
2: Yeah, um, I mean, that's good, man. It's always good to kind of have that freedom and flexibility. Now, so, Jonathan,
0: were you always like that? It's sort of like kind of like an extrovert that likes talking? Because I'm kind of that way now. But when I was younger, I was definitely afraid of speaking to people.
1: Oh, no, I was that kid. Like that? I was I was every parent's nightmare. I was the kid that would talk to anybody. Um, and uh, my mom had several stories about couldn't find me, and I was having a con at like age, I started talking very early, and I would have be having a full conversation with some random old dude at like three or four years old in the grocery store because it was just interesting to me. Um, so yes, no, I was always the extrovert. So, we're,
2: we're- <laughs> We're uh, having technical difficulties and messing with Ty's uh, mic right now, which is going from way too quiet to way too loud, both at the same time. So, um yeah,
0: never happened before. Okay, go, go on, John, go
2: on. <laughs> uh, do you know something that's uh, like an interesting phrase that I first heard in law school and it's kind of resonated with me is they say when you go to law school, it's really just the process of learning to love the law. And just kind of appreciating it for what it is. Like I'm, I'm assuming you've heard that phrase.
1: Yeah, I, I've heard it. I, I, I never thought it was any more than the bullshit that the professor said it was. But uh, <laughs> I, I think law school doesn't really teach you anything about the law itself. I think agreed. Don't, I don't think you really start to love the law until you're out practicing in it, and you're you're pushed into a corner with a weird question that either doesn't have a good answer or you can't find the answer that you want or need. And so you start crafting these arguments to, to, to either end run, not end run's a bad word, but to get around a barrier or to make an argument come across to a jury. And I think that's when you really start to love the law. Uh, I didn't do mock trial because I was, I was working for a federal judge and I was on the law review. But I think that people that do mock trial experience that a lot sooner than the rest of us.
2: Yeah, I think so. I really think that my first year of law school, I did not like it. I was just anxiety ridden. I was, you know, 1,200 miles away from home and didn't know anyone. It was a complete different language to me. Like I hated law school Um, until my second year when I started mock trial and I kind of experienced that side of it, like actually practicing and doing a closing argument and doing a cross examination and going through, you know, the discovery, quote unquote, and figuring out how, how you're gonna attack a case. And it became like very competitive to me and very um I th- I think, yeah, competitive is the word where you just you want to go through a case and figure out, you know, how to get around something or do case law research to get a more in-depth um kind of view of an issue that you're dealing with. But I, I agree with you. I think mock trial and just being in the courtroom is definitely probably the best part.
1: Yeah, I, I would absolutely agree. I, I hate the office stuff. Uh, I do it and I do it well, but it's uh, it's probably the least favorite part of my day.
2: <sighs> yeah, it's never fun. <laughs> As um, is
1: all adult life. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. How much office work are you guys
0: doing? Just from someone who has no idea what lawyers do on a day-to-day basis, like is it mostly office
3: work?
1: Yeah, even for a litigator, uh, if you're a good one who does your own prep work. um, So for every hour in court, there's, well, for every hour of actually doing something in court, because John, you can, you know, you've had a brief period of time as a defense attorney, probably 90% of your time in court is sitting there staring at the judge, trying not to get caught playing angry birds, waiting to hear your client's name. Wow, that
2: uh, accurately described most of my court appearances so far. (laughs) (laughs) So
1: put it all together, except for maybe in trial, it's probably a, I don't know, seven to one. For every seven hours in the office, you get about an hour of actual attorney time.
2: Wow. Yeah. Uh,
1: I did a ton of family law, and it was almost the reverse because your clients lie to you so frequently that uh, yeah, all of your prep work comes for not about seven seconds into the hearing.
3: Oh, jeez.
0: Interesting. I thought, oh, that family law stuff. don't even want to.
1: This stuff seems so
0: gnarly of just oh, family going at each other.
1: Oh, and it's it's the absolute worst. There's a, a saying going that as a criminal defense attorney, you're seeing the worst of society on their best day, and as a family attorney, you're seeing the best of the society on their absolute worst. And that is uh, so true. I have so many stories that uh, when I tell people, they tell me I just had to make it up and it's all from family law.
2: Yeah. I don't think they could pay me enough for family law because it's really just dealing with someone's drama at the worst like point of their life, pretty much like breaking up with their spouse, destroying the family. And then they come to you to complain about like every aspect of that.
1: Yeah. It's the trifecta of spite. Everybody is spiteful. Um, if you're ever out on your own, you may have to do some because it, uh, it's incredibly lucrative. But um, but you're also – I always felt like I was stealing money from people. Uh, you don't have to fight like this. You don't need me to be the bulldog. You need me the guy, to be the guy that talked you down, which is probably why I wasn't a very good family attorney. Is I
2: didn't want my clients to go to court.
1: Uh, right. Like, every-
2: I can't y'all figure this out. Go to therapy.
1: Uh, yeah, every every time you go to a hearing, everybody except the lawyers lose, and I would tell them this, and then they would continue to write me the check, and I would continue to steal <laughs> their money and this. Uh, <laughs> and I, I felt steal.
2: I mean, earn their I money. Said,
1: hey <laughs> I was always upfront. I felt if I was upfront about it, I could take every dollar that they would throw at me. But fair enough. And and sometimes the most frustrating was. Uh, my client would be, I could talk them into being the reasonable one, but opposing counsel was more interested in billable hours than anything else and would whip up their clients. And so we were having stupid hearings over things we could probably agree on. Right.
2: Yeah, like doing criminal law, a lot of times you get dragged into kind of the family law field because sometimes it's an accusation of domestic violence, for example. And when you're defending someone who's accused of that, a lot of the times there's, like a divorce going on in the background. There's going to be child custody issues. Uh, Child Protective Services is involved somehow because they always get their nubby little fingers on things to ruin them as fast as possible. Um, So it it really just turns into a shit show. I think uh, I had
1: someone tell me once that normal life is trying to herd cats and being an attorney with a client, so a non-transactional attorney, was sort of like trying to herd cats on meth.
2: Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's probably a good way to put it.
1: <laughs> and, uh, and, I, and on the psychotic, like the psychosis side of meth, not the I need to clean the house. I mean, it's the everybody's out to get me type.
2: <laughs> it's the bad side.
0: Yeah. yeah, we all know there's many uh, benefits to meth, but yeah, we're talking about the bad side. Some technical difficulties, <laughs> people. John and I are sharing a mic now. I don't know what happened. Um, So, Jonathan, what's one of the worst family law cases that you worked on where you were just like,
3: are people really doing this to their own family? Oh, um, I probably have two.
1: And one is funny. And so I'll probably lead with that one. Uh, this one were two individuals and and John, I've told you this story before there was this, they both lived out in the country in South Bear County and they had uh, a fair amount of land and, uh, they had a pet raccoon, which has always been a dream of mine. I thought they were the coolest animals ever, but this, this thing was probably 60 pounds was way overweight and huge. Oh, it was it was massive. It was the biggest. That's
2: like a medium sized dog. That's crazy.
1: Uh, yes, and it and it it ambulated more like a basketball than it did a some sort of uh, <laughs> trash panda. Uh, but it uh, <laughs> we were in went through an entire day of mediation and had the kids figured out, and there was four of them in about the first ten minutes. And most of that argument was who was going to have to take them, um, which I don't have kids, Yikes. but that, that was just infuriating. Then the property was more or less uh, sorted out. But what we couldn't agree on was this damn raccoon. And so we ended up having a two-hour hearing. And mind you, at this point in my career, I was billing about $400 an hour. So, and this is in Bear County, where it's a presiding court system. So you show up at about 845 for a 9 o'clock docket, and you sit until you get farmed out to a court. And we had announced two hours because my client told me he had about an hour of testimony about this stupid raccoon, and the other client had said the same thing. So we sat in presiding court from about 8.45 until about noon, broke for lunch, came back at 1 o'clock, and finally got assigned to a court. So I'm, I'm billing for all of this time. I'm sitting there unable to leave. And we have a two-hour hearing where my client, who was living on the ranch, Uh, got up onto the stand and cried for a solid hour about how much he loved this raccoon. Good lord. And then his soon-to-be ex-wife got on the stand and cried for about an hour uh, about how much she loved this raccoon. Now, mind you, she was moving into an apartment, uh, so I don't really know how... Oh,
2: yeah, I wonder how the apartment feels about pet raccoons.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, Well, I can tell you, uh, the words are probably not appropriate for mixed company, but... (laughs) We go through this in, in this hearing, and the judge at the end, of course, of course, awards my client the raccoon because he lived in the country. And uh, I, I continued to do some little things like traffic tickets, and he got a DWI and some stuff like that. So we we worked through all of that throughout the next intervening years, and I'd always ask him how the raccoon's doing. Then about four or five years after that, he came in to, ha- to ask me to handle a ticket. I asked him how the raccoon's doing, and he looked at me with this dark expression. Oh, that son of a bitch bit
3: and, and <laughs> I, made, nothing.
1: I made the jokes like well did you send it to your ex he said no I ate him what that was like a $10,000 raccoon I, I just to this day I can't imagine it and I,
2: uh, that did not go the way I was expecting it to go and it's going to take me a second I, so, it it didn't go the way I was expecting it to go <laughs> <laughs> did, did you give more detail
1: uh, I was a little afraid to ask, but uh, apparently it bit him, and he got angry, and he took it outside, shot it, and made it into a pie. Um, wow. So, yeah. I, I mean, it was one hell of a big pie,
2: I guess. But I guess so, man, with a 60-pound raccoon.
1: Probably pretty greasy, but, you know, I mean, say love Good lord. A 60-pound
0: raccoon that everybody was fighting over, and your actual kids...
1: They're just like, yeah, you can. Oh yeah, the, the fight there was who was gonna have to take these little cretins. I mean, it was uh, it was just terrifying.
2: Imagine imagine meaning less to your dad than the raccoon that he just shot and ate like it baked in a pie. That's pretty yeah. depressing.
1: Yeah. Coincidentally, that's that's how you come across my desk now as a felony prosecutor. So
2: <laughs> What a great segue. <laughs>
1: they kind of tie in there. I think the worst case I ever saw though, um,
2: this is family law?
1: Yes, family law. So I told Ty I had two and probably the worst and it actually still haunts me and I think it was the most difficult case I ever dealt with, um, period. But either being, including being a criminal defense attorney or as a prosecutor, it was a a young mother and father. They were probably in early 20s. Um, Both of them were pretty heavily drug addicted. Both of them had wealthy parents. And I had been hired to represent the husband I had two two kids, two of the cutest, uh, most beautiful little children I have think I have ever seen. And uh, I'm not a huge fan of kids, so that's really saying something. And uh, about halfway through the divorce, um, the kids were split for one period of time, where the, the girl was with the mom and the boy was with the dad. And they'd do that during the week, and then on the weekends they would alternate Uh, And a lot of that came down from just arguing back and forth. And both parents uh, OD'd at the same time, but nowhere near each other. And the little girl, who was probably five or six, I think, was the one that called 911 for her mom. And the little boy, who was probably four, got out of the apartment and was hit by a bicyclist, and thankfully it was just a bicyclist, um, but developed some brain injuries that he never recovered from. And um, I think that was the closest I've ever been to killing one of my own clients. I was I was so angry on that case, and it still it haunts me. I I, I remember the photos, just talking about it. I can see it right in front of me. I had to get off that case. I couldn't I couldn't continue. Um, and both of these people were only fighting because both of their parents would were concerned about the you know the grandbabies but they just they couldn't believe that their children could ever do anything wrong and we we're, we're fine with spending tens of thousands of dollars to fuel this this fight right. um, both of those kids were taken away and are in foster care and uh, last I heard about four years ago are, are, are doing wonderfully but uh, that was probably the worst case I've ever been in. And sitting down with my client and telling him he didn't deserve to be a father and uh, having the the conversation with him where he was arguing with me about that the entire time was just mind blowing.
0: Well, at the end there, when you were saying uh, they're in foster care and as far as I could, last I heard, I thought you were gonna say they died or something. No. So at uh, least they're doing good.
1: As far as I know, and that was a few years ago last I heard gotcha. one of my friends actually. So you're a
0: prosecutor actually, now?
1: Yes, I'm a felony, what they call a family justice prosecutor. So I, I'm i on the worst of the worst cases. I have everything that involves uh, people messing with kids, then uh, also domestic violence when it gets to the felony level. Um, so that's that's where the, the main focus of what I cover right now.
0: So you do you specifically like family oriented law because you're doing what you just said the uh, prosecuting um, felonies regarding families.
1: That's a good is that question. Like, um, is that like your
0: field of expertise.
1: It kind of became that way um, as a as a defense attorney. Uh, you kind of get pushed into cases, and especially when you do court appointed work. And I did I did court appointed work in... I think the most I did was seven counties at one, at one time in Texas. But if you, if you take your cases seriously and you, and you do a decent job, the judges start giving you the tougher cases. And uh, I think that there's no tougher and more important case than the child sex abuse cases. And so I started having to handle a whole bunch of those. And um, uh, honestly, after a while, I, I started to feel a little dirty being good at it. Um, I had a a really good verdict on a client that I was 100% positive was very guilty for doing the worst things you could do to a child. And uh, I think that's the only time that I have cried as an attorney. Um, And it was because I had had done my job and the guy was going to go home and I was convinced it was to just molest another child. And uh, so I think part of my Penance is the other side of that now. And I think one of the reasons I'm so passionate about it is because I, part of it is I feel I have a debt
3: to owe. Right.
2: It's definitely something I get asked a lot is how you, or how I like defend people I know are guilty. How do you feel about that? And what I guess is your answer? Well, so
1: that's a really good question that, that again, because I can't even introduce myself in under 500 words, uh, comes in two parts. Uh, 2010, Jonathan Fisher, as I had just graduated law school, would give the answer that, you know, it's my job to defend the Constitution and that I'm not defending that individual, that we're talking about the rights uh, that all of us bear. And I think that 2019, Jonathan Fisher, as I was still a defense attorney, but moving rapidly towards being a prosecutor, would say something similar, but in the fact that all of our rights are only tested in the cases where people are either guilty or look pretty guilty, because those are the only ones that go to trial. So the rights that people who have never even gotten a speeding ticket enjoy every day from searches and seizures and um, cruel and unusual punishment and uh, a fair trial are only tested by the worst of the worst. So a good defense attorney, I think, does two things. One, ensures that our rights are actually being upheld in court. And two, I think they're the biggest check on the government in general. And by that, I mean law enforcement, which includes prosecution. I think right. a bad defense attorney is the biggest assault to our individual liberties than, uh, than a rogue bigger assault than a, than a rogue cop or a rogue prosecutor. So I think one of the most important jobs is a, to be a good defense attorney. And sometimes you're going to be the guy that represents the end the innocent guy that gets railroaded. Uh, most of the time you're going to be representing the guilty guy that you're just trying to do the best mitigation you can and sometimes you're going to be representing the guilty guy that you get to let walk. And while our system isn't perfect, I think it's the best one. And now I'm uh, having conversations with some of my victims about that the system is not designed to protect victims. Uh the court system is designed to protect defendants because it's it's their liberties that are at stake. And I think a good defense attorney is the the hallmark to all of that.
0: That's a good point. Um, through some of these podcasts where we've been talking to lawyers and judges and then having conversations with John uh, before all of this, I always looked as lawyers as um like bad people um, mm-hmm. and like they're not necessarily protecting our rights. they're just shady. but after talking to all these people what you just said is true. It's you guys are like the greatest defenders of our rights. And even though it it may seem like justice isn't truly served, you have to protect those rights.
1: Exactly. And I think that's the hallmark of, of justice is sometimes justice is not that the victim didn't get what they were hoping for, but that the police who didn't quite do it right or the prosecutor who didn't do it quite right aren't rewarded for shoddy work and stepping on the liberties of everybody else. Right. And it feels dirty sometimes and it hurts people sometimes. But honestly, I remember a conversation I had with my dad when I was about to go into college is that the world doesn't give a shit about you. Um, he still he still debates whether he actually said that to me or not, but uh, that's what he said. <laughs> uh, and that's it doesn't good give advice. it's great advice. Doesn't give a shit about anybody, and uh, really, more of the collective angle to it is about the best you can do. And okay. it's never going to be fair, but all you can do is is do your best.
2: Have you ever seen the movie A Man for All Seasons? I have not it's a really really good movie it's about a uh, saint thomas more um who is he's the patron saint of lawyers and he was a lawyer for um, so a real asshole in other words yes um so he was he was a lawyer for <laughs> for another real asshole um who was trying to have him killed but he was kind of defending so in a in, well, long story short one of the scenes in the movie is this guy that he knows is going to tell the king like to behead him. Thomas Moore knows this. Um, he's leaving and Thomas Moore's son is like, dad, just have him arrested. I'm like, what are you doing? Have him arrested before he goes and gets you beheaded. And Thomas Moore says that to, he would not even to go after the devil himself, like tear down or break any laws, because as soon as you tear down those walls and the, the winds change and are now coming towards you, there's nothing to protect you at all. So even for the devil himself, you have to uphold the law and not breach the law in order to, you know, for the greater good, quote-unquote. Because, you know, if it comes your turn to be in the crosshairs, it really doesn't look good for you. And it's, heard, it's, it's one of my favorite movies. I've heard that quote before, and and I think it's so
1: telling um, because, and, and it's interesting. There's actually, the United States Supreme Court has come down and said that it is not only permissible, but the duty of a criminal defense attorney to lie. Uh, which is something you wouldn't think about, but it is the duty of a criminal defense attorney to lie when talking to a jury or to whatever or to fabricate or to do whatever they can um, because it's the test is not upon the defense but on, on the prosecution. And what I have said to to some law enforcement, and, and John, I can't get into it, but I know you're privy to some of this, Um, you can never, as law enforcement, step across that line. There are rules we cannot breach. And the moment you do, you are no longer law enforcement. You are a criminal. And there's uh, on the law enforcement side as a prosecutor or as an officer, and that's one of the things that I've heard your friend Ethan kind of mention on a couple of times he's been on is you, you just you can never, ever cross that line. And even for the devil himself, you cannot break the law to put him away. Otherwise, he wins. To be honest,
2: yeah, no, very true. And after you cross that line once, too, like it becomes a lot easier to cross it again a second time mm-hmm. or something. You know, even less important.
1: And if you're ever found out, every any good you ever did is automatically invalidated.
2: Yeah, that's what's crazy, man. Is if a cop, you know, four years ago arrested a child molester for something. And you know, down the line, four years later, he himself gets caught with child porn, um, or lies under oath, or something along that those lines. Like all his work is going to be like they're going to fire him. He's not going to be able to be a witness for him. If he is a witness, then all of that comes up and just destroys the case. So he really does just undo all the good he's done in his career by you know lying one time.
1: I saw an officer who did some great work and had people put in prison for life for killing people and and doing awful things Threw some dope down on a dealer that he knew was a bad guy got caught. And two of the people that he sent away for life were let free and they were absolutely guilty. And that's, that's all
2: all for something that you know, that dealer would have slipped up. And he would have been arrested later on.
1: Oh yeah, if he had just given him a couple days, he would have had him. But he invalidated his entire. Um, there was a, a a judge that I I absolutely adore, and and, and actually, it was Burt Richardson, and and, and Judge Contreras mentioned it as well that uh, you're in you know a a reputation can take a lifetime to build and can be lost in thirty seconds. Yep. And that's exactly what happens. And you're we doing have the wrong thing for the right explain. reason. There you go. I'm sorry, Ty, I didn't mean to interrupt you.
0: Uh, the way This is just like a summation of what you guys were talking about. But the way uh, my grandpa always taught me about reputation was imagine it like a bucket. And over the years, you just throw a couple drops in. That's you building reputation. Years and years and years, you finally build it up. And all it takes is one instance for you just to pour it all out. And then you're back at square one. Everything's lost.
1: If you're lucky, because there's probably a big hole in the bottom of that bucket.
3: Yeah, 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 that's true. Well, that Uh, got awfully somber, awfully quick.
2: (laughs) Uh, How do you like being a prosecutor as compared to a defense attorney?
1: You know, I actually love it. Um, There's things I seriously miss. Uh, I, I just am in dire need of some cross examination. I, I just loved cross so much, uh, direct is so boring. Uh, and then what happened? Oh, and then what did you see is just the dumbest question. Yeah, it's the worst. Um, but I, I love it. I, I love working with law enforcement. I, I love the office I'm in. Um, I don't think I would like it if I was in some of the bigger counties, uh, surrounding me. I think I would hate it. Right. Um, I enjoy being able to evaluate the cases from the very beginning and make decisions on on what needs to move forward, what can't move forward. Um, I've loved it. I've been doing it for, I just actually looked it up the other day, two years and four months and have loved every minute of it. I'm sure you know it'll. I mean, there's a grind to it, just like we talked about the seven to one ratio. There's nothing worse than sitting in my office reading police reports and and listening to jail calls that literally strip IQ points. Good
2: lord! <laughs> Bro, I have a uh, a client right now who will not shut the fuck up on his <laughs> on his jail calls, and so we have to get it like once a week. But it's just so many um, that one of our interns is pretty much doing that full time listening too, like the jail calls. Uh,
1: yeah, and, 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 it, and it strips you of your ability to do your job.
2: Yeah, it's crazy, man.
0: Did I tell Wait, you so it? the prosecution has access to jail calls as well?
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, they pretty much send them over immediately. Oh. Like, depending on the case. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. and oh, Same wow. with the video calls, too. Um, oh, wow. Like, there's, there's a case in the, the office I used to work at as a prosecutor where a guy confessed to um i think molesting his stepson or something like that through sign language over a video call uh-huh. not thinking that it was recorded and it was in fact recorded <laughs> and that got sent sent to the prosecutor who was like interesting um so yeah that made the the deal a whole lot worse
1: yeah that was one of my cases and and he absolutely uh apologized for it the uh, gang sign it was uh it was very interesting it was, it was one of those things where you gleefully tap out the email to defense counsel. But um, did, did I ever tell you about that capital murder that my partner tried up in San Marcos and I, I kind of helped in the background with him? I don't think so. This is where jail calls come to burn you. He, uh, he was a kid that had no hope uh, from the very beginning. I mean, this, this kid was going to end up in prison for life at some point. And he had taken a single-shot four ten shotgun that was in such bad shape that even the state's uh, experts said that it was just waiting to go off. And uh, he decided he was going to rob a weed dealer he knew. So uh, he knocks on the door, the door opens up, and he does the, give me the money. And then the weed dealer slapped the barrel of the shotgun, went off, shot him in the stomach, um, and he bled out right then and there. So they charged him with capital murder for murder in the course of committing a robbery. And uh, we had a pretty decent mitigation case and worked hard, and the jury came back and found him guilty of murder, not guilty of capital murder. And the big difference there was that there's parole available for murder. There's no parole for capital murder. If you're convicted of capital murder, state's not seeking the death penalty. The automatic sentence is life without parole. And this kid was early 20s, I think. Uh, maybe, maybe even slightly younger than that, but the day, the evening that the jury was deliberating about whether or not to find him guilty, he went back to the jail and made a jail phone call to, a video call to his entire family. And we show up the next day, they find him guilty of murder, and the prosecutor slides across this disk. And this said, you're going to want to watch this. I'm going to ask the judge for a recess, which is never a good sign to hear as a defense attorney. John, if you ever hear that, you know, just make sure you wear your
2: brown pants that day. (laughs) I'll keep an extra pair in the briefcase. Exactly.
1: He's like, excuse me, I'm going to change into the brown suit. (laughs) Uh, But we pop it in and it's this kid talking and I can talk about it because it, it was played for the jury was talking with his entire family about how it doesn't matter what they give me because he's still dead. Bang, bang, motherfucker. And the whole family erupts in laughter. So we had an amazing mitigation case. We were thinking we'd be able to work it down to a lower sentence. And as soon as that video was played, um, on a recorded jail call where it starts off that says that this was subject to monitoring or recording, uh, the jury was staring at our table uh, with daggers, and when they went back to go do the sentence, I think they sent back a note asking if they were able to go back to talk about
2: the capital thing. <laughs> is, is the chair still an option? <laughs> Possibly lethal injection?
1: Yeah. And I remember my partner grabbing this kid by the shirt and telling him, when you hear the words life, I want you to remember this moment. And that's precisely what the jury did to it. Imagine that.
0: The most shocking thing to me on that was the family laughing. Like him literally going, at least that guy's dead. Ha ha. And they're like, yeah, ha ha ha. Like how depraved do you have to be as an entire family unit?
1: Oh yeah. Like I said, when that kid had no hope, that's, that's because of that. I mean, he, everything that you could imagine that could have happened to him as a child happened. Man.
0: These podcasts are making me depressed, John.
2: I know. Jeez, man, we need some happier guests on. Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That sounds like a selection problem as opposed to a who you've got on the show problem.
2: That's true. Uh,
0: So where do you want to go from here? So you're prosecuting right now, um, family law before, and where do you see yourself going?
1: You know, that's an interesting question. I would... I think I'm going to stay prosecuting for as long as I'm able to. I, uh, I've just I've just really enjoyed it. I think it's a niche I fit very well into. Um, so I, I think probably for the rest of my career, my hope anyway is to continue prosecuting in one way, shape, or form or another.
0: Is a federal prosecution like a, technically like a promotion, like a move up, or no?
1: It, it, it is it's it's a lot of prosecutors' dreams uh, to be a federal prosecutor um, I, I don't think I, I have any real desire to do it because I'd have to uh, I'd have to go to, to San Antonio every day or go down to Corpus or something like that I'm real happy kind of living out in uh, a little bit more in the, the rural area and doing the more rural style of law. <clears throat> um, I did some federal work as a defense attorney and uh, I think those guys, have an awesome job. If you get dropped into the unit that works well for you, like judge Contreras, uh, his role of doing the major crimes taking down the Mexican mafia and and dealing with the murders and stuff was, uh, was really sexy. I I think my luck, I'd probably be doing bank fraud, um, (laughs) (laughs) which is, which is the legal research version of prosecution. If you want to look at it, that real man,
2: Yeah, there's no good uh, no good closing argument for bank fraud, that's for sure.
1: Yeah, and the those rich sons of bitches made less <laughs> <Yeah>. money.
2: <laughs> <laughs> he took $5,000 from Chase Bank. Yeah. He'll never recover.
1: <laughs> yeah, he, You know, he, yeah, and then, well, yes, and last week we prosecuted Chase Bank for taking a million from that little old lady, but that's not important today.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. Irrelevant. Jeez, <laughs> 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 oh. uh, man. Well, I think um, I, I also like being a prosecutor. I'm not sure if I like what I do now. Like both definitely have their ups and downs because being a defense attorney and being in like a, a private office as compared to like working for the government, I really, really enjoy. Um, that being said, government hours is very nice. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I think there's definitely ups and downs to each. Yeah, I,
1: I thoroughly enjoyed it. You know, I was it was me and a buddy of mine, and we were our own bosses. I, I made my own hours. I, I kind of chose, except for the appointments, chose my own cases, and uh, uh, it was great. There was a, a little bit of terror as working for yourself is you know, no one's contributing to your retirement. There's no such thing as paid time off, Right. but uh, I loved it. I, I wouldn't give any of it up for sure. Uh, some great stories, Some some great times. I learned a ton. So, yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. There's, there's good and bad
2: to both sides. Um, so you mentioned that capital murder that y'all worked on. What, what are some other kind of crazy cases or some of the worst cases that you've seen in the criminal field?
1: Uh, well, I think the one I was most terrified about was uh, an individual. And I can't you – know, I was just attorney, so I can't go into anything – confidential we talked about, but the allegation was that this guy who was a grandfather who had been to prison twice before once as a 17 or 18 year old who was the driver of a car where some of his friends went in and robbed a gas station. And I I do believe that he didn't know that they were going to go pull guns on people. So he went to prison for that and then after getting out he went to prison again for some drugs. So He was looking at, he was in his, wow, early 60s, I think, when this case happened. So he was looking at 25 to life, you know, I mean, whatever happens, he's going to die in prison. And what he was accused of was molesting his granddaughter. But the reality of it was that his daughter was an awful, awful human that would drop her daughter and son off at a crack house to go to other crack houses. So, you know, free childcare, I guess. And this guy would drive around the city looking for his grandbabies and would find them and take them home. And her son she had had with a married guy who never left his wife. So we've got that guy and his wife that have their own kids. And the creepy part was that that guy is, didn't want to have anything to do with this little boy. He just wanted to be around his daughter, which huge red flags, but he'd have his daughter over at her house on every other weekend. And, and one, one weekend, um, his, his daughter uh, outcried to her stepmom, his wife, that Popo had touched me. And so she did everything you could imagine. And she went and, and took the child to the forensic interview and, uh, she told sort of the similar story and we this poor guy got arrested and he sat in jail for 24 25 months and it turns out what actually had happened was and i this is the one of the few clients that i truly believed was completely innocent and it was terrifying because i knew that the only thing standing between him and dying in prison for something he didn't do was 28 year old me Um, who still had a big ego, but even at that time uh, knew that there were limitations. And so, uh, solid panic, lost a lot of sleep trying to get this figured out, and it turns out what had happened was that the daughter of the husband and his wife had been molested by a distant family member, but didn't want to tell anybody. So she had told the other little girl that it happened, and told her that she was afraid she was going to get in trouble, and would she mind saying it happened to her to see what her mom would do? And so being six or seven years old, told her mom, that her stepmom, that she had been molested by Popo. And then the snowball effect happened, and she was getting a lot of attention and being told it was very important to tell the truth because people get in trouble for telling lies, and so she kept telling the same story over and over again. And two years later, when she was almost nine years old, um, finally that same piece of shit mother finally let our investigator talk to the little girl and she burst into tears and said, she made it up because of this and gave the whole thing. And, uh, so we were able to run all of that down. I found the real, uh, perpetrator of it as a defense attorney. I was, I was not a prosecutor at that time, handed it all over to the prosecutor and it still took them six months to dismiss that case. Really? Yeah. And, uh, I, uh, and it was it was number one for trial. Um, we were getting ready to go to trial, and it was it was it, that was probably the worst case that I'd ever dealt with as far as personally, because I knew this guy was innocent. And then when we finally were able to prove it, we got drugged along until they finally let it go. And uh, I didn't even get a phone call. I managed to stumble across the dismissal, but. Um, that one was the one that terrified me more than anything else, I think. So,
0: whatever happened to Swift Justice, because like you just said, this guy was in jail for how many months beforehand? And then after they found out the truth, it still took six months? Just as an outsider looking in, it what? seems like people will get arrested, and they'll have like a date for like a hearing, and then trial comes, and then once the trial's done, it's like, oh, you're guilty, sentencing is in... Nine months. It's like, why does it go so slow, or am I wrong?
1: Well, um, so on the federal side, that's 100% accurate. And I I never quite figured it out, but if you are found guilty in federal court, it'll be a good six months before you get to sentencing. Uh, In most state courts, it's anywhere between four to six weeks when you come back for sentencing. The main reason it took so long to, to get to where we were really pushed for trial is that in that county, which is one of the biggest in Texas, uh, on Monday through Thursday, each of the 13 district courts will have 60 cases set for trial. And if you know you can only try one at a time, one per week, really, um, so you keep getting pushed out for the guy that's been sitting in jail even longer. And um When we were finally coming up, and there had been some delays on our part, some delays on the state part, uh, partly because I was terrified and wanted to be completely ready. Uh, But that's a lot of it. Uh, The small county I'm in now, um, most cases get dealt with between 12 and 24 months uh, if you really need to get to trial, because it's a smaller county, a lot fewer cases.
3: That still
0: seems like a long time,
2: like a one Mm -hmm. to
0: two year turnaround for a small town. It still seems
2: slow. Well, and it does depend on the size of the case and what kind of case it is too like a a case like that or it's a sex assault of a child that's going to be you know, a lot of preparation for both sides to do so the trial day gets pushed further and further back but yes the dwi depending on the case like the caseload or the docket size you may get there in you know, nine months to a year if not sooner and and
1: in a small county we have three now four district judges of tri-felony cases there's really when i say three and a half it's because one of them is supposed to be civil priority but other three judges also two of those judges cover three other counties and one of the other judges covers two other counties so really they're only able to do at most one trial a month so in our county we're could possibly do two trials a month but if we have four trials a month we don't have an office big enough to handle that so if you've got two trials per month at best I mean you're looking at resolving 24 cases a year and that's if you try a case at every setting
2: if people don't really like I've I've talked to a lot of people who are outside the legal community Mm -hmm. who have been kind of frustrated with plea deals like oh how can they you know plead down to this blah 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 but then once I, I explain that aspect of it, of like a trial will take a week, so one courtroom can do, you know, 50 trials a year, assuming they have, you know, a week off for Christmas or whatever, and then they have to have a regular docket. And that's without regular docket. So it's it's really just a logistics.
1: And it's, and it's also part of it's that the rules of evidence are not common sense. Um, yeah that's very true like like if the three if you you ty and i are sitting down and we're talking about an individual and we're trying to figure out whether we like this guy or not we're going to discuss everything we know about him, everything he's done in the past everything that we've been told he's done in the past and we're going to try to figure out what our feelings are um and it's and it's odd to say that you know, because every day we use, we make judgments on other people and we make judgments on other people from what we know and what we've heard. And in a criminal case, you're not allowed to do any of that. So sometimes you have to plead a guy who's guilty down to a lower sentence or a lower charge because you can't get into what you need to get into in order to show
3: he did it.
2: Right. Yeah, I've always thought that's like really interesting, like the 404... Um, which is the character evidence rule of the rule of evidence for both the federal and for Texas. It's, it says essentially that evidence of a person's character to do something can't be used because to show that he acted in accordance with that character. So pretty much just because he did it multiple times in the past, doesn't mean that he did it in this particular instance. And the whole reason the rules there is because it's too convincing that he did it like 10 times in the past. And then he's going to do it this time again. So it's like, no, 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 you can't use that because it's too good of, of like, not evidence, but, like, I guess it is evidence of the person's character. Like, you'll just decide it on that. Or, like, 403, for example, which is if there's a danger of being too prejudicial, then you keep it out, too. It's just really interesting how it's favored. In, like, you, you were saying earlier that it's um, really there to protect the defendant and not the the victim's. And, you know, that's really true. And you look at the rules of evidence. That makes a lot of sense.
1: Well, it's like Judge Contreras said, uh, if you've heard the guy stuck up 10 different uh, gas stations before, no one gives a shit if they actually did it this time. Yeah. Uh, the only aspect of that where that doesn't apply is touching kids. Um, so the way the law is written, and I hated this as a defense attorney, and I love it as a prosecutor. Um, in Texas, it's 3837 of, the, 38.37 of the Code of Criminal Procedure, and it's based upon a federal law which says the exact same thing. If, uh, if you're accused of touching a child, so some sort of sexual abuse of a child, you can bring in everything that you've ever been accused of before when it involves a child. If it's the same kid, the judge shall admit it. If it's a different kid, the judge can admit it. But it's an abusive discretion standard, which means that they'll never be overruled for doing it. Um, I I like it and I hate it at the same time, because for the same thing. But at the same time, people who molest kids almost never do it once. And um, where an example might this this might come in is an individual is being charged now. Well, here's a perfect example: an individual. There used to be a statute of limitations for uh, sexual assault of a child. There's not anymore, but there used to be. So if it got past 10 years, past the age of majority, so if the person was 30, say, now, you could never charge them for what they had done in the past. But if they had touched a couple kids now, that person gets to come in and testify what happened to them. And there's an instruction to the jury that they can uh, consider it, if they believe it beyond a reasonable doubt, they can consider it for any purpose, including character and conformity. Uh, which is terrifying um, in one aspect, and I I get why it's there, but uh, also
3: terrifying. Right. Yeah, that is
2: terrifying. And that really goes against the uh, kind of whole point of the Rules of Evidence. Like, I I get what they're doing, and I'm not, you know, I hate child molesters as much as the next guy, but, uh, like... That, yeah, it it really does seem like that's stacked against the def- the defense. When I feel like in a criminal prosecution, it's like all the odds should be stacked in defense's favor.
1: Yeah, the tie is supposed to go to the runner, but just wait till
3: you defend one and all that's coming in, and your client gets mad at you, and you're just like, well, I mean, I told you it was coming in. Yeah. So the the you know the,
1: the whole theme to that one is just don't touch kids.
3: Yeah,
2: that's a good, <laughs> good moral lesson we all learned tonight.
1: You'd think that you'd think you wouldn't have to say that, but I learn every day that it seems like we need to say it more often. Yeah, good lord, man. We need the basically Chris Farley running around and instead of a Van down by the river. It's just shaking college students, high school students. Don't touch the kids. Don't
2: touch the kids. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what we need is a Chris, Chris Hansen to come back. Yeah, (laughs) start to start doing his thing all over again. How to Uh, catch a predator? Yes. Well, it's that show.
1: Well, you and I both got to play a little bit of Chris Hansen on a on that. Oh, yeah, that was
2: fun, man. Like we went to prostitution stings. Um, You did? Yeah, it was crazy because they all were like texting, like, "Yeah, baby, come on over, let me get all up on you," and it's some forty-year-old dude named like Barry who's like. 50 pounds overweight all <laughs> sweating texting away like <laughs> yeah. oh man that's uh, that too was something else
1: yeah yeah and we we've done it since then and focusing on people looking for child prostitutes and it's uh, it's one of those things where they show up and it's like oh no
2: no 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 no
1: it's uh <sighs> Jeez, but, man uh, do you remember the the guy who looked exactly like the tiger king
2: yeah, I think about him all the time. How's he doing? Do you know?
1: I, you know, I don't know that. I don't know what happened with that case, but I mean, it was it was like I, we we found like Neil Exotic. Uh, it was not Joe, but it was so close.
2: Yeah, it was weird. But it could have been. So this guy that came to hire a prostitute and then he opened the door and there we were. He's not very happy about that. <laughs> he looked just like Joe Exotic. Like he had the weird like fluffy shirt on and like the hair coming down. And all that stuff, and Do you smell uh, like cigarettes. Oh yes, yeah, probably like meth too. But oh, um, but yeah, dude. And so, and whenever people would park near the hotel, they would like get the car towed because they got arrested. Um, and so apparently, <laughs> apparently, when this guy uh, like came back, he had his wife come pick him up, or what, whatever the deal was. His wife was there, and the tow truck driver was somehow the story got to me. But he was saying that when the, um, his wife came, she was like, oh, you know, what'd you get arrested for? He's like, oh, speeding tickets. <laughs> they, oh. they towed your car? Like, Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Well, and it cracks good me for up, him. dude. <laughs> yeah. it cracks me up. Dude, I always thought that'd be like a lot of fun to just do that for a living. Like do a Chris Hansen thing, how to catch Predator
3: oh
1: yeah I would I okay so ty you asked me I would give a prosecution and a heartbeat to be that guy that steps out and was like so who's bang daddy 69 you know like. <laughs>
0: are they are they doing this over text are they doing it over whatsapp is it
1: encrypted like what is it it's text uh, uh I, I oh. can't I can't get into what the law enforcement uses but it's it's all based on uh, a there's a couple websites that haven't done what Backpage has done to get rid of the sex trade, and so they post ads and uh, and get people to chat, and it's uh, it's a whole process. It's it's very interesting and utterly disgusting.
2: Yeah, I'll bet. It looks like we got some homework to do, John. Yeah, I guess so, man. Um, have Have you guys or either of you like seen the YouTube videos where guys like do that just for fun? The vigilante guys, yeah, yeah. Dude, it's so have you seen that? Yeah. Dude, they had this one where they uh like they had this guy over. It's like, oh yeah, come on in, sit on the couch. I'm gonna go get a more comfortable clothes. And like this <laughs> girl walks away. And then dude, bro, this huge Russian guy comes in his biceps are the the size of my thighs. And he just comes in. It's like, are you here to talk? Dude, my I I can't do a Russian accent, but are you here to talk to my boss's daughter? And he's like, What? <laughs> <laughs> they had him like shave his head. They wrote like "pedo" across his face and Sharpie, and like took pictures of him and stuff, and then sent him off.
3: I wonder if that worked.
2: It probably does. If it works, yeah. I don't know, man. If, if a Russian, if I was ever in a position where a Russian dude had me shave off my own hair and then write "pedo" across my face, I think I'd stop doing whatever caused me to be in that situation.
0: Well, because what Jonathan was saying earlier was that these. Uh child sex offenders they're always repeat offenders they're always going to keep doing it so maybe if you get these guys you're getting them on their first voyage out they're like uh maybe i'll try it and then you traumatize them and they
2: never do it again you know there is a chris like a how to catch a predator where they like got a guy and three months later they got the same guy doing the same thing so yeah probably not they'd probably just be back out doing it
1: Oh yeah. No, yeah. That, I remember that one. And, and, and so we've had a few of those other things and there's, there's a couple repeat guests. It's like, you just bought it out like seven days ago and it's crazy, man. Uh, it's, it's, it's an amazing, amazingly terrifying part of, of the human psyche that I just, I cannot get a grasp of.
2: It's very strange.
1: And it's, and it's this, um, this risk thing. There's, that's where the high comes from it. You know, I mean, they, these guys could go to Thailand or something and where it's, you know, frowned upon, but no one's going to prison, but instead they, you know, go to the La Quinta Inn uh, and, and, and get caught by law enforcement. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's just mind blowing to me. The, the amount of, I've always been kind of risk-averse as it is. I'm, I'm Vegas's nightmare. I, I lose $5, get angry, and go to a show. But, um, <laughs> you know, I just I can't understand the whole, you know, I'm going to put my entire life on red. And not just red, but like red one. Anything else that lands on, die in prison.
0: Right. Is that what you think the primary thrillers with these sexual predator guys. It's like the chance of getting caught. Like, Ooh, this is risky. Like it's that simple.
1: It it depends. There's a ton of research on this. So the ones doing the prostitutes. Yes. They, they literally cannot to lack of a better, other than a colloquial word, get off unless there's that risk. The ones who focus on children, um, well, there's here's where the split of the research is. Some of the research says most of them were were uh, abused as kids, and some of the research says that that's not true. But a lot of that comes down to the power aspect of it. And, and all rape is not about the act itself. Every bit of rape is about the power that comes into it. So those that rape adults, it's not because they enjoy the sex. It's the power that comes with it. With the the molestation of children, a lot of it, is the ability to control that individual in such a complete and utter way and to to take the innocence almost of, of, a, of a soul away. And a lot of this has been developed not only from um, treatment and conversations with offenders, but also if you just watch the grooming behavior that comes from a lot of it. Is it's, it's developing this. It's all control. Every bit of it's control. Um, the people who like child pornography probably is a little bit different. Um, so there's kind of like three zones of where all this comes in, but it's, uh, it, it, the majority of it is a control thing. And you can't control adults, but you can control this kid in the most utter and complete way. And it's the sickest thing to see work out. And a lot of these people will almost talk themselves into not believing it, I guess is the easiest way or to believe a different Avenue of it. And you can lay out exactly what happened and they'll still not agree. Uh, it's crazy.
2: What do you mean? Still not agree with what?
1: Uh, That it happened or why they did it. Um, Oh, uh, uh, something along those lines. Um, uh, or that that no, I swear I've never touched that child, and then but like the child outcries. Oh, the word three...
2: that makes me very scared.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like, well, okay, what about the others? Yeah, and it's. I mean, it's it's a it's a very dark and very terrifying aspect of the human psyche where these things kind of lie and where they where they seep out of, and it can come from almost anywhere that's the most terrifying part is it's not just the drug addict on the the deep south you know the the stereotypical south side right next to the track sometimes it's the really wealthy guy or even more terrifyingly um i've had a couple cases where it's members of law enforcement and and it's 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 terrifying how it can just kind of come out from anywhere and i i i think i'm kind of at times
3: i'm glad i'm not a parent to be completely honest, is I don't have to worry about that. Right.
2: Have you noticed that a lot of times the relationship between the um the victim, the child victim in the guess predator is like a stepfather, stepdaughter relationship? You
1: know, um, The studies show that a majority of it is going to be a biological child. Really? And the most dangerous offenders are the ones that don't predate on their direct relatives. So um, the way the research goes and when you kind of classify it, so, (laughs) okay, so this is a crazy thing to say, but like which child molester is not the worst. Like if you're looking at classifying them into the one that, you know, probably should just be shot as opposed to the ones dipped in acid. Um, the ones that are the least dangerous are going to be the ones that pick a relative, a close relative because it's not that same risk seeking behavior of the guy in the panel van or the, the Herbert from family guy that, uh, or something along those lines. Um, I think a lot of the older, and by older I mean like as, as far as the child age is, is probably going to be a step-parent, um, unless it started very young, at least as far as I've been able to see in the research. But I, I think a lot of it is within the nuclear or very close to nuclear family. I think um, uh, aunt, aunt uh, uncle and uh niece or nephew or aunt or niece or nephew I think fits into that same thing and that's where probably most of it is
3: well now I'm depressed again.
2: Yeah we came full circle back <laughs> to depression. And that seems I mean like you're saying I hate to make you know one oh this this child molester isn't nearly as bad, but like obviously they're all bad, but I think to do it to your own child just seems like going from the worst it can possibly get and then just take it in like a couple steps further than that.
1: Oh yeah. I, I uh, just because that the, uh, the, the literature says that that person is less likely to offend against others. I, I honestly don't give a shit. Uh, I think if you do well, it, why take your, the chance Well, yeah, that, and if you do it to your own family, um, you know, I don't know if we're allowed to use the really bad words on this podcast, but if you're gonna if you're gonna do it uh, to your own family, motherfucker, I don't really give a shit what happens to you. And at that point, um, if if you burn in prison, then I think that we've not even begun to scratch the surface of what needs to happen. If you will violate your duty to your own child, um, I don't trust you to be a member of society with even the slightest bit of social contract. Like I fully expect you to never put the a shopping cart back in the rack type thing like even that i think is below you
0: so is protect protective custody in these jails and prisons for sex offenders are you guys like yeah that's a good thing i mean obviously it's to protect them but i mean just being like an utter savage it's like shouldn't we just let them just mix amongst the other people and let justice do its thing well Part it's a pretty of, wild statement
1: yeah <laughs> part of me really likes that um, part of me doesn't uh in the fact that um, I, I guess with it, my biggest concern with that is is i think doing stuff like that a lot of a lot of the idea of pc or protective custody and things like that are are protecting the guards um, and if you When you mix these someone ends up getting hurt and riots tend to happen and then the quote-unquote innocents tend to get uh, hurt and second of all um like we've talked about our entire system is developed kind of to protect the rights of the worst of us and um i think even the worst of the worst are owed a duty to be protected while in state custody um do i cry over the sex offenders that uh get um what some would say they're just desserts not most of the time um do i think it's a tragedy yes because uh, i think it's a failure of of kind of our society you know um uh not even 60 years ago we were hanging people in the streets for or not even 100 years ago i mean we were hanging people in the streets for um what was then considered the worst crime possible, which was a black person touching a white woman. So I think that while the concept sounds great, the, the side effects of it are what scare me more than the just desserts type side of it. If that makes sense. It
2: makes a lot of sense. It's kind of like what we were talking about earlier is you know, once you cross that line and Oh yeah, lynching's okay for this specific crime well, maybe it's okay, you know, if it wasn't his daughter and it's just stepped on her then, then okay, maybe it's okay if it's like a murderer and then maybe it's okay if it's you know, attempted Then it just goes down.
1: <laughs> yeah. And then, then the next part is, is like, maybe it's okay. Cause you're that son of a bitch that took the last Claire from the gas station. You know I mean? I, <laughs> I mean, it sounds crazy, yeah. but I mean, that's where books like um, uh, the Lord of the flies uh, kind of comes into play and. In, really a lot of our haughty, not haughty, but a lot of our, our aspirations for perfect society fail just because we have humans involved. Uh, as dark as a situation, as dark as a statement that is, I think, I think socialism would make sense, except for being involved with humanity and perfect capitalism makes total sense until you involve humanity. And I think the same yeah. thing with, um, of the prison situation uh, there's a perfect example in South America there's there's several prisons that literally as long as you don't escape the guards don't care and uh, prison security is run by the gangs inside uh, I think one's in I don't know if it's Brazil there's a, there's a couple documentaries on Netflix that are very interesting um, inmates have to provide for themselves um, and the negotiations between the gangs are done between the gang leaders and as long as people don't breach the walls, uh the guards really couldn't care less. And it's a, a brutal existence that becomes a caste society where, you know, a, a petty thief might starve to death because they're not able to align with one of the other gangs. It's a it's a such a weird thing to think about. You know, I mean I I don't want prison to be a comfortable environment. I think mean, that's the exact opposite of what prison's supposed to be. But uh Like you said, where do you draw the line?
3: Right. Now that reminds me of the uh, prison
0: systems described in the Gulag Archipelago, the Russian Gulags, where the guards pretty much were just concerned with, don't escape. That's all they did. Um, And then the quote-unquote stool pigeons, so the snitches working for the guards, and then the actual criminals were the ones that ran the entire jail system, and they got the extra pieces of food. And then the innocent people or the quote unquote petty criminals were the ones that died and suffered as a result.
3: Yeah, it's a, uh,
1: uh you, you know, and, and you got to also understand that the point of the Gulag, um, was very similar to a concentration camp under the third Reich. And, and, you know, um, uh, I, my, my, Long-go history was the German kind of akonaj uh, uh set up. So, I mean, there's whole sections of my, my family tree that kind of disappear after about 1939. But while Hitler killed about 6 million, Stalin killed about 30 to 40 in a very mm-hmm. similar fashion. Um totally legally because they were in his gulag prisons um for whatever crime the state decided and um i
3: think that's the scariest thing for me as a prosecutor is convicting the innocent guy right
2: that's a terrifying prospect man
3: uh, but... um, yeah and especially once you get
1: to the felony level i mean on misdemeanor the worst he's going to do is a couple years probation or maybe a you know a couple months in jail but uh uh, you know, I've I've got I counted up the other day. I think I've got a little over a thousand years and sentences underneath my belt in the past two and a half years. Mm. And um, and and you know, I I have been trying to be very careful to assure that each one of those was earned. And some of those, right. I mean, uh, probably about three, about about 150 of that goes to one individual who I think was far too low. But um, but still, like I I I am terrified of giving a day more than is just. I guess.
3: Well, hey,
2: that's probably a good fear, a healthy fear for a prosecutor to have.
1: And I don't think it's it's frequent enough. Um, I saw it as a defense attorney that well, we could probably get a conviction on this. It's like, yeah, but should you? And, right. Um, and sometimes it's
2: not the can can you? It's the should you?
1: Yeah. Um, and sometimes the answers I get would be like, I don't know how that's relevant. I actually had a prosecutor tell me that and it was one of the few times I thought I was going to get in a fight in a courtroom.
2: Um, yeah. That's insane.
1: Uh, and that was back when I was younger and blusterier and okay. When I wasn't quite as fat and thought I could win a fight, I'll be on it, I'll be on it.
2: <laughs> Jeez, man. Well, I like what she talked about it or touched on a second ago, uh, where, people kind of have this, this version and it's this modernist version of our outlook on humanity where we're not a fallen creature or somehow like with enough you know, retraining, you can become like a per- perfect person again. And I think all of that, and that's why socialism would be feasible is if we can all become perfect people. But yeah, I think the human condition is just kind of here to stay and it's just a matter of doing mitigation and uh, changing the incentive structure to not be a totally shitty person. But yeah, I think this, this idea that we're not falling creatures is very, very strange to me.
1: And that and tied into what was either the last or the one before podcast you guys did uh, with judge Contreras, when he was talking about that we're so concerned about offending each other and it's, and it's not okay to be judgmental for actions and behavior. I'm all about letting people live their lives as when it doesn't hurt others. But um, if we're so concerned about not offending other people and we totally ignore the fact that we're all a little evil, uh, at the very best anyway, I think it just sets us up for such a terrifying aspect of society, um, where yeah. anything is permissible and you're not allowed to judge anything. Um, where it sounds great as long as everybody's playing by the same rules and that's never going to happen. And, um, you know, I, I think, well, I, I don't advocate for bringing the stocks back. I, I think that a bit of societal judgment is necessary to keep people from harming each other.
2: Yeah. It's like a Chesterton, um, I think it was Chesterton said, like the line between good and evil runs through every human heart. And yeah, that's that's totally true, man. I think, uh, yeah, I think I'd be in support of the stocks, honestly. Yeah. yeah. There's no like conviction or anything. Just like, oh, okay, you're stealing. Go hold a sign on the corner of this busy intersection that says, I am a thief for eight hours. And that's it. No conviction at the end. Just let society judge you, and then there you go. Yep. Well, it's
1: uh, yeah, uh, and it's um, I was thinking of uh, you, you know, there was this, there's this Netflix series, and I don't know if we can talk about the shows without violating copyrights or whatever. But this guy's a a confessed murderer, and he's been on what that state calls close management, what we would call um, administrative separa- uh, segregation here. And he's been on it. He was on it for twenty-something years. And his complaint was that when going to these hearings about whether or not he was going to be held on close management, and mind you, it's every month, he was arguing that they're bringing up things you did in the past because—and this is the tone he used—because it's on your record. That's why they call it your record. I'm like, yeah, that's why we call it your record. You've
3: you know. <laughs> great way of summing
1: it up. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> You killed your cellmate. That's going to follow you. You know, I mean, it's just one of those things that it's like, we're not going to put you back in general population where you, I don't know, can kill another one. You know, I mean, it's just, I mean, it's the craziness of it. Or the dealing with the family member of a defendant you have as a defense attorney, and my baby would never do that. It's like, well, I mean, lady, your baby's been to prison three separate times for, and you look at the file, literally this? Like, I mean,
3: I don't know what point you're shocked.
2: Crazy people, man. Well, shoot, I think this is a, a good spot to wrap it up and put out the fire here. Jonathan, thank you for joining us. Well, Thank you for the invite. I really appreciate it. Yeah, man. Do you have any closing thoughts? Oh, um,
1: I don't know. I, I, I guess my biggest thought is that I, I think that there's a lot of hope for what we could be as a society. Um, I think it's important to be very real and say that law enforcement and prosecution is not perfect, Um, but, and especially in the the society we're in now, and I heard Judge Contreras mention this, that it's very anti-law enforcement, being both now kind of in law enforcement and being an attorney where literally one bad apple spoils the entire barrel, and now I have to deal with uh, two barrels at the same time. I think it's important to point out that the person who hates a bad cop or a bad prosecutor more than anyone else is a good cop or a good prosecutor. And really the defense attorneys, the police officers and the prosecutors are the only thing between us and anarchy. And uh, I think it's important to remember that with all of our interactions with law enforcement, that that guy or woman is just trying to go home
3: at the end of their shift. Yeah. Well
2: well put. All right, everyone. Thank you for joining us around the campfire. If you have any questions, you can email us at askroundthecampfire at gmail.com. And we will be back next uh, Wednesday morning. Good
3: night, everyone.